the Bitterfly Podcast. Knowledge is food, bitches. Eat up. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast today. Uh, We've got a guest on who I met on Tinder a few years ago, if you can believe that. Um, Now we're good friends. So welcome health coach and fitness trainer, John Ferris Kelly. Um, he focuses on behavioral change and helping people live a happy and healthy lifestyle. Shout out to Tinder, meeting some good friends. <laughs> Welcome, John. <laughs> JFK. Thank you. So if you follow this guy on Instagram, what's your handle? Instagram handle and pretty much everywhere else is going to be John Ferris Kelly, J-O-H-N-F-A-R-I-S-K-E-L-L-Y. So if you follow this guy on Instagram, you'll see that he does a lot of yoga, lifting, you post a lot about supplements, meditation, and breath work. But what's your what's your main love, John, and, and what keeps you sane? I think overall is just happiness. Uh, finding something in life that is going to give you some passion and give you some drive. You know, it's whether it's fitness, whether it's nutrition. For me, I think all of it kind of wraps into one. You know, you don't have a healthy mind potentially without a healthy body, or a healthy body without a healthy mind. A lot of these things kind of work in conjunction. There, creating an environment. Um, you know, we can get a little into it a little bit later and talking about free will. We do have the power to kind of change our surroundings, but there's also a lot that we don't have the power to change and the ability to change. So I think being able to recognize some of those scenarios, the, the times when we may be able to grasp what is actually happening and what we can do to change that. Uh, and then times that we can't actually make those changes. And, you know, not that we're helpless or that we're, you know, don't have the power to make those decisions. But I think there are a lot of things that go on around us in life and in relationships that kind of create a different perspective in our life and allow us to see the world differently from time to time. So I think being able to be more self-aware and to be a little bit more present in the time can really do wonders and allow you to either cope with things that are happening, take ownership over that, or kind of be a, a leaf in the wind where you're just letting life take you. And unfortunately, you know, things happen and you have to adjust along the way. Staying grounded. What keeps me sane is waking up every day, knowing I have you know, maybe six to 11 people in my life that are still here dealing you know, a lot with death, uh, a lot with change in life. I know everybody has that. For me, I've had certain circumstances that have really shaped my perspective in life. You know, being able to take in some of that information and uh, also realize that you do have the power to kind of create your own happiness. So you started a healthy and happy program for people that follow you. Um, how did you get into that? I mean, I guess I've always been into health and fitness. It's something that even in my past history with drug abuse, or fortunately for me, let drug abuse take hold of my life. Uh, it really did kind of put a stranglehold on me, but their physical fitness uh, and trying to be healthy is something I think I've always had in the back of my mind. I think it started from an early age and I didn't really realize it until a little bit later in life, but uh, I can really draw back to a specific time when my grandfather had a heart attack. And I, I remember realizing that you know your body can actually stop working or, you know, losing my mother at 55 from cancer, your body can do things that you might not have control over. Uh, And to help people take control back of of some of those situations where, you know, maybe some of those scenarios could have been fixed or could have been uh, halted. Providing people with not only tools, but the encouragement is the big thing. You know, we live in such a crazy society. Some people may or not be familiar with Dunbar's law, basically saying that, You know, you really only have the capacity to form relationships with upwards of maybe 150 people. I mean, we look at how many followers we have now and how many people we follow on Instagram and social media. 
it's hundreds or thousands of people without us realizing it just yet is creating kind of an odd dynamic in society for better or for worse. It's creating greater connections, but maybe less significant connections. So I think being able to really narrow some of those down and try to reduce some of that anxiety, maybe the fear of needing to fit into this extremely large group. For the fear of missing out, FOMO has just gotten larger and larger. Um, as time goes on with social media. You see someone's post and you think, you know, I wish I was doing that or why can't I live that life? That's just their highlight reel, you know, like that's just like the best moments of their life. But yeah, we tend to think that that is um, their whole life. And and I, I also, I want to use those platforms again to to help empower people. I think, again, everybody has the ability to take control of their own life, uh, whether you're eating a poor diet, whether you're not exercising, I think now the information is out there and it's accessible. Just empowering people to to take control again, creating some some sort of structure or community, that system where people have the ability to rely on one another, whether it's me or whether it's another group of people. I think that uh, having that sense of community and structure can be really big and powerful. So let's go back for a second. You were talking about how at a really young age, you realized that sometimes the body just stops working the way it's supposed to, which is a really sad realization when you think about it, you know, because you're a kid and you, you run, 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 go, 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 and everything works. You know, if you were, if you were lucky, you didn't have like a chronic disease or something like that. Um, I remember realizing the body does decay and, and being terrified, you know, seeing like my parents' friends needing new knees, my grandparents needing new hips. It's, it's kind of one of the scariest things about life, honestly, you know, besides the fact that you're going to eventually die, it's that like you may not die, but your body may, you know, and how do we live with that? So just how was your realization with that experience? It's been, I guess, ongoing. Uh, it's something that continues to kind of manifest in my day to day life. There's something in us, whether it's our ego, uh, whether it's part of evolution and the ability to maybe not look too far ahead. Uh, I think, again, we all know that some of these things happen, especially with science now and some of these studies that are coming out, uh, whether it's dieting, lack of exercise, substance abuse. There's just so many things that we know now. I mean, we know in in certain studies that attribute to a shorter lifespan. It is hard. It's hard to make these changes to sit down and say, one day, I'm going to stop eating these foods that genuinely make me happy in that time. There's so many, I mean, all of our organs are on the inside. You have your skin, you have some of your physical appearance that you can get a kind of a, a baseline of your health, but there are so many things that go on internally that you might not know about, or most people probably don't know about unless they're doing extensive research and extensive testing, being able to, to kind of come to terms with that and realize, you know, the choices that I make will have detrimental effects in the long run. You know, there are, are folks who are like my grandfather, he's 93 today, actually. And he drinks every single day. He's got a beer day and a whiskey day. So he (laughs) drinks every day at 11am, beer one day, whiskey the next. And he's 93. And we don't know how he does it. He's got a ton of stress in his life. He's lost kids, he's lost significant others, but he's got some sort of genetic makeup that has allowed his body to be a little bit more resilient to some of these stresses. You know, and those are maybe 1% of the population. So he's the exception, not the rule. Complete exception to live your life hoping and praying that, you know, maybe I'll be that person who lives till 100 and smokes every day. It's it's very unlikely. It's wishful thinking. And you may live to that age, but you're not going to live the quality of life that you want to live or that you couldn't. And I think that's my biggest goal is to, you know, like you said, we're all going to die. Eventually, people come to that realization, whether it's 10, 15, 30, or 60, or 80. 
eventually you realize, you know, your time is short lived on this earth to do whatever you can. I think I was fortunate to have that perspective uh, from an early age and to realize that there are things that you can do to mitigate some of those risks later in life. What are your credentials before you give us a bunch of health advice? <laughs> like I said, with the ability of some of this information, that's where I really gained traction. I've, I've been active for the past maybe 20 years, uh, 15, 20 years, but it wasn't until maybe 10 years ago, maybe not even five years ago, until five years ago, uh, where I did have these tools at hand, you know, literally in my hand or in my pocket. If somebody in mid-conversation is, is bringing up some sort of nutrient or exercise or part of the body, five minutes after that conversation, I have the ability to go on my phone and look that up and say, you know, what were they talking about when they were speaking of heart disease or diabetes? And I can learn Granted, there are millions of articles out there, but with a little bit of diligence, you can find the proper information and credible sources. So that's really where it started from with me was from curiosity. I knew there was a right answer. It's just hard to find it, unfortunately. And I think that can be very discouraging. So combination of that, kind of using my body as a, an experiment, I did some genetic testing. I did some blood testing. And again, this is all prior to actual education. Got my feet in the water and tried some things, tried some diets, um, tried certain exercises that I thought might help my body out a little bit. It took me a long time. It took me maybe two or three years to really fine tune some of you know, my dietary needs or when I should or should not exercise. Deciding to really go all in on this, this aspect or this area of life, you know, really wanting to help other people overcome some of the struggles that I've overcome. Honestly, a lot of it might've been lack of funds and the ability to access a health coach or a trainer which for most people out there is very tough. So that's why I say that, you know, utilize some of these tools that we have now. There's, there's so many valuable tools out there that you can access, you know, hopefully from your phone if you have the ability to. And then I think just that curiosity, once I learned one thing of, you know, how I might be able to change my mood or change my reaction to a certain scenario by, you know, lowering my blood pressure or lowering my heart rate, it really gave me hope to think, you know, if this worked, if this breathing technique worked for me, just by breathing a certain way, I was able to reduce some social anxiety. What other tools are there out there? That really got me excited. And I think hopefully that's what I can inspire others to do is to wade into those waters very gently. Um, there's so many things out there that you could do and try so many fad diets and recommendations that people give you. But until you actually do it for yourself, if you want to break down one year into 12 months, you can learn 12 different things within that year. If you spend one month learning you know, about diabetes, you can spend 30 minutes a day learning about diabetes, and that's 15 hours by the end of the month. You know, and that's instead of watching Netflix at the end of the night, you're spending 30 minutes on your computer or researching articles. Uh, I think to take your life back into your own hands is something that's very powerful and very special. You create that relationship with yourself where you realize that, you know, I'm me. Nobody knows how I feel or what I want out of life. Again, create that kind of narrative for yourself, I think is, is very powerful and, and just special. You create that relationship. You learn more about yourself that way. Uh, and I would encourage anybody who's interested. For me, it started from complete, you know, from a complete amateur state, just Googling stuff, following certain people on Instagram. Uh, and then that manifested and then led me to find my passion and wanting to help others. So now you're on the American Council of Exercise? The American Council on Exercise, I've worked with them over the past few months to obtain a health coaching certification. That's really my end goal is to work with those, especially youth, I think, 
Uh, I've, I've dealt with lack of mentorship growing up. You know, my father was always around, but he was very busy and I didn't have the same type of, you know, I hate to say mentorship that I needed, but I felt like there was a little bit lacking there. And most of us get to the point where we're 20 or 30. And there are so many experiences that we've gone through growing up that without realizing shape us tremendously. What's up with 90s kids? Like, it's like our parents were there, but like, there's like a lot. I mean, I personally feel like I also lacked mentorship or, or like what I needed, you know, and Google wasn't around to help them help us. So now we're helping ourselves in our 20s and 30s. The, the outbreak of technology, uh, you know, parents were really doing their best to adapt to maybe this new technological age. The world was a lot different from when they grew up. Baby boomers, you know, have gone through quite a bit in their lifetime. <laughs> so much. <laughs> Being able to find, you know, a way to pass on the lessons they've learned, but also adjust to this new age. And, you know, even from when we were kids, things are a lot different even so now. And that just the access to information, the ability to connect with others, it's changed a lot. And I think empathy is something that I value a lot. And I, I hope that others can try to harness a little bit as well. It's tough when there's, you know, close to 8 billion people around and you're a fraction of a statistic to still come from a genuine place and not just to go through the motions of, hey, this is what you should do when you grow up. Try to empower people to really go after what they, they're passionate about. There are kids making $20 million a year on playing video games. Good luck telling your parents when we were you know, in the 90s, hey, mom, I want to play video games. Oh my up. God, they would have never <laughs> believed you that you could make money like that. I was just going to say, I've instituted optimistic nihilism into my life because as you were just saying, we are very small. We are a fraction of a fraction of the world and we're only going to be here for a fraction of the you know the entire time the universe has existed and will continue to exist and so i've instituted optimistic nihilism into my life which is that you know life has literally no meaning besides what you give it you know what you attach meaning to um and we're only here for a short period so make the most of it while you can and like live as happy and healthy as you can you know keeping in mind that like you're not going to live forever but also keeping in mind that if you want to be around, you know, for the most amount of time that you can, you want it to be enjoyable and you need to treat that body right. I loved what you said on a, a previous podcast. Um, there really isn't a past or a future. And there's not. Um, you know, sometimes I like to look at it in the sense of the future is watching us. You know, it's not here yet, but eventually it's going to know what has happened right now. And, you know, the pandemic we're living through, all of these things we're doing now will be realized someday, but that's not here yet. So there's no sense in worrying about, you know, are these decisions we're making now correct? You know, am I doing the right thing now? Am I making the right steps from where I was yesterday? You know, yesterday, I, I remember dreams better than I remember yesterday sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I actually just had a weird dream the other day that I was hanging out with the Kardashians and they were like super down to earth. And yeah, I don't, re I don't remember what I ate for dinner yesterday, but I yeah. remember that dream. <laughs> yeah, it, it is very interesting the way that uh, your conscious creates your reality. Um, and I think going back to that free will, it's something I've been really fascinated with lately of the ability to decide what you're doing right now is predicated on years and years of, you know, potential trauma, experiences, relationships, all of these things that have developed your body and created these neurological connect neurological connections within your brain and your body you're acting upon those right now so the past does matter because you are having to deal with some of those ramifications of what you've gone through a lot of people i think rely on that as an excuse they they had a traumatic experience or 
things didn't work out the way they, you know, maybe anticipated or wanted them to, and they get hung up on that. Good luck changing that because there's not really much you're going to be able to do now besides you know, try to, trying to control what's going on around you and your mindset and how you're going to anticipate the future. Definitely got to make sense of it so that you can move forward using that as a propeller. So you're also working on becoming a nutrition coach, right? You focus on behavioral change and sustainable accountability. I went into this this whole venture of learning with the anticipation of focusing more on behavioral change. It really involves a lot more than just deciding to do one thing or another, embracing change. There's a lot of factors. And I, you know, like you've spoken on before, I approach the body as more of a machine and food is you know, not only fuel, but as you said before, information. And it does really tell your body what to do and how to do it. And I think to have that background, you know, to go into a scenario where I need to tell someone to eat this, or, you know, I've researched this online, this should work for you. Uh, I, I needed to do myself uh, a little bit more justice. You know, I'm going to need to be able to take some of those scenarios into my own hands, whether it's recommending a, a training exercise or recommending certain foods to eat, or a way to go about learning about those foods. Uh, again, I, I want to be able to empower people to make those choices themselves. You know, I'm never going to be one that's going to prescribe a certain diet plan for somebody. I'm going to try to work with people to get to that point where they can make those decisions, where we can try to find resources that they might be able to look into for themselves. Definitely there to answer any questions about nutrition or fitness, but I think the biggest thing is to get that spark going and get somebody's you know, just overall perspective changed to a point where they can be a little bit more self-aware and then I'm there for that, any type of reliance they need, kind of empower them with the tools to, to get to that point without some of those other nuances in life, whether it's blood testing or genetic testing, you don't really know fully what you're doing to your body. So I think having a, a well-rounded approach towards health includes food and exercise. So what's your approach to healthy eating? I just learned recently about this term called intuitive eating, which is so goddamn obvious to me personally like oh eat when you're hungry and don't eat when you're not hungry you know and that doesn't necessarily always line up with three meals a day at certain times you know because like humans are dynamic and we're always changing but how do you approach healthy eating being intuitive about your eating is something that is very beneficial I think I, I remember when I started this whole intermittent fasting craze uh, you know again I heard about it online and I thought you know, for me, I wanted to get to the point where I had to eat less throughout the day or not less, the same amount of food in less time. So what I would do is actually compress that window and eat maybe between 12 p.m. and 8 p.m. at night. Now, it did can, take- Can you actually explain to people what intermittent fasting is real quick before you go on? Yeah, it's, there's a couple different ways to approach it. Um, Time-restricted eating is another one that is very popular where you eat within a certain window. So for me, I like to eat within, you know, on an average day within about an eight hour to a 10 hour window. It doesn't always have to be the exact same time every day. For me, it's pretty consistent because I can eat my first meal at lunchtime right around noon. I usually have my last meal around seven or eight at night, which gives me enough time to digest and go to bed. And then throughout that process, your body goes through a number of different changes. And it actually happens according to maybe the hour that you're into that fast. So there are different things, physiological changes that happen throughout a fast, whether it's 12 hours, 16 hours, 18 hours, you hear people doing three to five day fasts even, 
which can be very beneficial as well to actually clear away some of these dead cells in your body or cells that might not be at full strength. So what, the, what can happen is it's called cellular autophagy and your body will actually clean up some of these cells that are maybe at 50%. Whereas typically if a cell is you know, not fully healthy, another cell might come over and distribute some nutrients. So instead of a 100% cell and in a 50% cell, now you have two that are maybe 75%. With that cellular autophagy, you're actually making your body a little bit more resilient. You're clearing away some of those you know, deadened or sickened cells, and you're allowing you know, pretty much the entire cellular makeup of your body to be healthier on average. And that's a very simplistic way of, of getting that across, but it is something that can be very, very helpful um, on a, a deeper cellular level. As much as I love eating, I don't want to have that meal taking up that much time in my day. Uh, I spend a lot of time preparing food, eating food at home, home cooked meals, and it takes a lot of energy and it takes a lot of time. So for me, I can compress that eating into a smaller window, say eight hours, where I'm still consuming the same amount of calories. My lunch is a lot bigger and my dinner is a lot bigger, but I'm still not having to eat that breakfast meal. Kind of the intuitive part, the last thing I'll mention on it is for me, it actually took conscious effort to not eat in the morning and to start that process off because I was so curious of what intermittent fasting was and what it could do. So my body was so used to eating an early meal that I had to actually force it to wait in a little bit later until, until a little bit later in the day. Uh, whereas a lot of people I talk to, they say they're not hungry in the mornings. And I, I think a lot of people feel that way. They have that fear of, oh no, I'm not going to be able to eat until lunchtime. I have to go the whole morning at work without food. <laughs> and this is at six in the morning before they've even left their house. Like, can you just hear our boomer parents, like their voice in my head saying, you know, you're going to get hungry. Like our breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Like when did, you know, when did that start and stop? Cause I, I personally have no problem waiting until 12 to eat generally, but yeah, there is that fear um, that you're going to like reach hunger and not be able to satisfy it because of other things you're doing. And a lot of times it's just thirst. Your body is actually, your body might feel hungry, but a big glass of water can actually satiate that hunger craving. And your body is more so thirsty than it is hungry in those scenarios. Uh, I think, yeah, you are totally right. The uh, kind of the stigma of having that three meals a day, breakfast is the most important. I still agree that breakfast is the most important, but I hate to be this cliche, but when you break it down, it's breaking your fast. It's breakfast is the fast that's broken. So you're going all night fasting that first meal. I love having a very nutritious meal. And there's something that's easy to digest is for my first meal. So I have a lighter salad, or if I'm home during the day, maybe it is 11 or 12 in the afternoon, I'll have some eggs. You know, it still is a breakfast meal. Eggs are very bioavailable and easy to break down by your body. You know, you're not going to want to have you know, a giant steak or a huge bowl of mashed potatoes or something that might take a little bit longer or might be a little bit more taxing on your system. So breakfast definitely is the most important, but when you have breakfast is not very important necessarily. So let's talk about the evening after you fast, after, after you've eaten in your eight hour window, what are the benefits um, to you waiting, you know, or having four or five hours between when you ate and when you go to bed? Like, how does that help your body? Your body gets, I'd say stressed, but it, it is taxed whenever you're eating food. It's having to digest that food. It's going through a number, number of physiological changes to break down that food, 
to allow that to absorb into your body, to your bloodstream, and to make use of those nutrients. So the main reason that I really try to eliminate eating closer to bed, for me, I have a tough time sleeping. Your body goes through a number of physiological changes, especially if you have a higher carbohydrate meal at night, that blood sugar in your bloodstream is really causing, again, a number of effects in your body that inhibit its ability to relax, start that shutdown process, to release melatonin, which actually makes you tired, as we all know. It's a chemical or a hormone that our body releases that will naturally make us a little bit more tired. That gets suppressed. So other things that, for me, I sleep a lot better. Uh, I notice whether it's the amount of times that I wake up during the night, Eating later in the evening increases my heart rate, increases the amount of times I wake up. I've even noticed that I wake up in the middle of the night hot. I have noticed the same thing. No joke. If I eat ice cream before bed, which is my go-to if I'm going to eat right before I go to sleep, I wake up at 3 a.m. fucking hot. Thank you for confirming this for me, that this is actually something that other people feel. I I spoke with someone the other day and... and, uh... She said, my boyfriend gets really, he wakes up with night sweats all the time. And I said, you know, we started talking about his evening routine and she said, well, he works really late. He gets home at 10 or 11 at night. And then he usually, you know, for instance, the day before this, actually, she made him a big plate of ribs, which those barbecue sauces usually have a lot of sugar in them. Oh my God, and yum. just that meat in general, you're, <laughs> it sounds delicious. I know. And especially after a hard day of work, uh, it's really tough to go home on an empty stomach and fall asleep. But that is primarily probably the reason why he was waking up sweating every night is because his body, as he's going to sleep, is still going through the process of digesting and trying to rid himself of some of these detrimental nutrients like uh, sugar or just to try to clear out the process in general. So yeah, trying to, to eliminate late night eating is huge. And a lot of that falls in with structured eating throughout the day. You know, for instance, uh, this gentleman, he didn't really pack his lunch. He didn't take much food to work. He would snack at work throughout the evening, get home. And that was his time that he relied on. I know I have food at home. I can make it home. I'm going to eat as much as I can and replenish all my nutrients at that point. And that was a conscious decision that he said he had made. So he was very aware of when he was going to eat. He just didn't structure it in the way that was maybe appropriate. And for him, he had no idea. You know, this was something that he had heard for the first time of not eating late in the evening. I think we're just we haven't been prepared well enough, uh, especially folks that are our age, you know, older millennials that uh, we didn't really get this type of training or, or instruction in school growing up. The, the school system, say what you want about it. I think everyone has their opinion about how the school system should be structured, but uh, to create some of these, you know, maybe classes that teach you about nutrition and exercise and you, you have a health class, you know, maybe for a semester in seventh grade, but how much of us are really paying attention in seventh grade or, or care about our bodies at that age? I think it's, it's pretty tough. So uh, more of a continual education would be much more effective, I think. Are you an older millennial? Because I, I, I consider myself a young millennial and sometimes I identify with Zoomers. Funny you say that. I didn't even come <laughs> to this realization until just about a week ago. Um, I'm just grasping now of the fact that I feel like I'm a millennial or I, that I am a millennial you know, millennials are entitled and millennials are, you know, have a, a poor sense of reality. Um, I thought I was kind of in that Gen Y phase. There's that overlap with Gen Y and millennials, kind of that early 90s. I was born in 1990. So I think the last 10 years, I was pretty stuck in my ways of no way I'm a millennial. But the more I, I've come to kind of embrace that 
that generation. I do feel like I fall in line with that generation a little bit more so than maybe Gen Y. Honestly, within the last week or so, I've, I've considered myself more of a millennial. And it's almost more empowering because I feel like those are the youth that, you know, from society standpoint are struggling the most. You're right. Gen Y changed to being called, we are Gen Y. Oh my there gosh. Was, okay. It was supposed to be small. And then I think it's all lumped in with millennials now. And that makes a lot of sense. Okay. I thought we were talking about two different generations. We are Gen Y. Gen Y millennials, you know, and I think, again, the, the term is more of the stigma than anything. Millennials but, birth years are from 1981 to 1996. So yeah, I, I definitely fall in that line. Um, and you I are think, a young millennial, sir. Young millennial. Um, I, I'm old at heart. Okay. I'll say that. Okay. Um, yeah, <laughs> but I think it was an interesting age though, to grow up in the early nineties of, you know, I remember my parents' first cell phone. I remember my first cell phone. Yeah. So I think for me, I thought, you know, millennials only know technology Whereas I felt like I knew a little bit before that. But again, I think that that's much, a much more uh, appropriate kind of classification for millennials of that early 80s to mid 90s, where we all kind of went through that technological change together. I have a and friend then- who always says millennials are so versatile because we grew up playing with chalk and then we grew up with the internet as well. Um, that dial up fun shit. Whereas Zoomers have we're literally only known life online. And it's very interesting. I'm. It's probably why they're so good at TikTok. What the fuck? Some of these kids are, yeah, they're <laughs> TikTok wizards. I've I've just recently gone on there, but the, yeah, the amount of I guess TikTok celebrities now or these youth that are you know 14, 15 years old, I cannot even fathom having a following when I was in my you know middle school or junior high. Yeah, I'm very impressed by them, to be honest. I don't know if I can handle it. I, I've been looking into uh, Gen Z a little bit more lately because I, I really want to work with youth, and it's something that really fascinates me. Um, whether it's the millennial generation or especially Gen Z now, they want to make the world a better place. They want to please their parents, whether that's you know maybe doing what their parents want. I have read that they're doing less drugs and having less sex than millennials. So oh, really? I don't know. Are they more religious? Maybe. I'm not sure what's driving that. I think more self-awareness and whether that's the awareness that this life is kind of fucked <laughs> or <laughs> that you you have the ability to create a happier life for yourself. You know, a lot of their parents are kind of like that Gen X range where, you know, they're in their 40s and 50s now and they've been able to maybe create a business by themselves. They've been able to leave their own job and create a business where the boomers, I don't think we're able to do that as much, you know, leave everything behind, go through change and to create a life that's more happier for themselves. I always talk about this with my friend. Boomers were like the most successfully brainwashed generation, you know, with my, with my own perspective, they kind of, you know, they bought into this, like, if you work hard, hard work times time, equal success and you know go to college get a job like your life is gonna be fine and millennials are over here like no bro that's not how it works <laughs> work smarter not harder and sometimes you might not reach success anyway like that's just the way the cookie crumbles and we might all never own homes to be honest like <laughs> it is interesting and <laughs> I, I look at myself I've got two younger sisters they're twins and they both went more of the corporate route where they kind of tested the waters a little bit outside of high school and college. But for the past five, six years, they've been wrapped up in kind of the daily grind of reporting to a big company and 
falling in line and doing their job and then kind of forgetting about everything after that. And I've gone through a little bit of a rocky process where I've tasted a lot of shit and I've tried different ventures in life. And I, I see, I think I see that in my father's reaction to me, you know, it's not a negative one. He's but like worried about you though, because you're, exactly. not, fo- you're not following the rubric. Like, he sees my sisters and he sees that they've got, you know, life quote unquote figured out. They have stability. <laughs> exactly. And I think some people get wrapped up in that process of, you know, I'm comfortable with what I'm doing now. You know, I'm making six figures. I have a great place to live. Um, And I think, you know, you can grind for 10, 15, 20 years at a company and all of that's gone. And what do you have at that point? What motivation do you have after 20 years of working, you know, as an accountant, you know, you're making 200 grand, but you leave that and it's like, the only option you have is really to go back to accounting and to try to find an accounting job. Yeah, you're pigeonholed for sure in that kind of scenario. There's just so much that's out there and so much potential and so much room for happiness. I think most people know happiness can't really be defined in one aspect and there's there's a lot that goes into it. So it's just, it's very interesting, you know, how things change even from 20 years or 10 years to the next 10 years. We're learning so much more about health too. And like you said, with the internet and every year passing, we're learning more and more and more is available to figuring out how to live your best healthy life. And it's becoming cheaper too, which is awesome. You know, they, I've spoken a couple of times about genetic testing or blood testing. And if you wanted to get your, your genetic testing done 20 years ago, it was a couple thousand dollars. And now it's a hundred dollars or $200. And it's something that's the ability to take control or to be aware of what's going on with yourself is a lot more accessible, which I think is very, very cool. That generation, you know, whether it's our generation or the Gen Z, they're only going to propel that further because they're growing up with, you know, those results right now and realizing, you know, what can be done. So if I wanted to get some genetic testing done or some blood work on say, you know, what kind of nutrients am I deficient in? What's that process? Where would I go? I started out just going to a a local Quest diagnostics facility. You can go through a personal care provider, whether you have a doctor that you see all the time. That's not always reasonable or the most uh, inexpensive for people to have a doctor they go to or to even have that health insurance all the time. A lot of us don't have health insurance now. You know, you can spend a hundred to two hundred dollars. Google's a a crazy machine. Just typing in genetic testing or blood testing near me. And you'd be surprised, I think, by how accessible it is and how reasonable it is. I try to do it every t- every year around my birthday. Whether I change up diets, I like to get a little bit of an idea of, of how those diets may affect me. So genetic testing gives you a very good baseline of you know maybe certain nutrients that you're lacking or that your body doesn't do a good job of absorbing or converting. So for me, vitamin D3 is one that I have a hard time converting. So even if I get out into the sun quite a bit, It's great, but I might not be absorbing or utilizing all of that vitamin D. So for me, that was very beneficial to know that maybe I need a little bit more time out in the sun, or maybe I need to supplement with a vitamin D. Adversely, I tested pretty high for vitamin B12 levels, which everyone's saying, take vitamin B, it gives you energy, it helps convert food into energy. For me, I was wasting money on these supplements. It's something that was very beneficial to me, helped me save money, one less thing I need to put in my body every day just starting the process of of getting to a clinic. Genetic testing can be a little bit more expensive. Blood testing can be a little bit more specific. You can test for certain nutrients. You can test for blood lipids, like how much cholesterol you have. 
can test for your, your blood work in general. A lot of it is, is very overwhelming, you know, whether it's genetic testing, blood testing, finding out what supplements or nutrients you do need. Uh, there's a lot that goes into it. And I think that's where having somebody guide you along the way is very helpful and uh, taking some of these steps and, and putting some of these steps in place to, to make sure you have that information that you need. Yeah, I've always struggled with depression. And I reached out to like an aunt of mine a few years ago, just saying, you know, I, I knew she had it too. So I asked, you know, what do you do for your depression? And she uh, told me to get a genetic test. And she said that she had this um, genetic mutation. They call it the motherfucker mutation mthrfr i think but um it basically means that your body can't break down folic acid so all the folic acid i was eating my leafy greens everything i was taking in my multivitamin it was basically going straight through me my body was not absorbing it so the doctor suggested i start taking folate which is the metabolized version um that my body could process that instead and what's funny is a folic acid deficiency can look like depression fatigue, being tired, you know, feeling sad, um, feeling like hopeless, all of those feelings, um, which are attributed to depression, anxiety also come from folic acid deficiency. So that was something when I started taking, I started feeling a lot better, realized I don't need antidepressants. I just need folate. I'm glad you mentioned that because that's the tough part about medicine nowadays is that doctors don't really have that type of education, you know, especially if they were educated in the 80s. You know, most of our doctors are older, at least, and, you know, maybe in their 40s or 50s. And usually those are the people we want to trust because they have the most experience. But they're learning information that they got out of a book in the 90s. And a lot of that's changed. And there are more holistic wellness centers where they do take a lot of those things into account. And uh, yeah, I think, you know, that's a very easy fix to, to just give you a Xanax or you know, give you an antidepressant. It's something that you're not really addressing the root cause. My, my favorite analogy is you go to the doctor with a rock in your shoe and they're going to give you a prescription for Vicodin and diagnose you with foot pain and send you on your way. You go to more of a holistic wellness practitioner, they're going to dump the damn rock out of your shoe. And it is what it is. You know, it's, there's so many fixes that are trying to be made now rather than trying to address the root cause, which I think you're saying it, it takes a little bit of work. Uh, sometimes it takes a lot less work than you think though. You can get to that conclusion, you know, just by reaching out to the right person or, or doing a little bit of research one evening. Well, the thing is when you go to a doctor, that's got a lot of experience, they're just, they're treating you from their own experience of, of patients and what they've seen. And um, I was just reading this book called everybody lies, big data, new data, and what the internet can tell us about who we really are uh, by Seth Stevens Davidowitz. Um, and it's super interesting because he talks about how we can utilize like Google search trends and queries to figure out what's going on with people. And they did a study going by certain symptoms that people Google in an area and figuring out, you know, who has the flu, because you'll tell Google things that you won't tell your doctor. And so like, wow. with that idea in mind, there's a specific doctor he mentions in the book who wants to create a doppelganger database online. Because just because certain symptoms present in certain people doesn't mean that those people have any relation to each other or something that works for someone might not work for someone else. And so the best way to determine how to treat an illness, a nutrient deficiency in a person um, would be best to find someone just like you, right? Like similar age, 
similar body type, similar weight, and, and figuring out if that kind of person had what you have, what worked for them might work for you more than just, you know, a random Joe off the street who had the same illness. And that's, that's super fascinating. Um, and I think, again, with this technological age, with it being more accessible and cheaper in 10 to 15, 20 years, that's going to be the norm plus some. You know, you're going to be able to have so much data on people and, and variants that we're going to be able to kind of, as best as we can, maybe fine tune who we are as a person and what has shaped or made us. Um, and again, everybody is still a little bit different based on your experiences, but you can seven to eight billion people eventually, if we get to that point where everybody has access to, you know, upload some of their personal information or to share some of these things, that power of that data is, is very, very beneficial. So yeah, I'll have to look into it. That's super, super interesting. Yeah, you should read that book. Well, since we don't have that doppelganger health database right now that everybody plugs into, um, what are some predictors of longevity that we could figure out about ourselves just by paying attention to things? Do you have any suggestions? They've done you know, some extensive testing and, and uh, kind of algorithmic creations where you can take, you know, certain blood biomarkers and predict your, you know, maybe at a, within a percent or two, your risk of developing diabetes. Um, happiness is something that I've put more focus on than anything recently. Foc or happiness and just stress. I think the amount of chronic stress that most people are dealing with, myself included over the years, you don't really realize that or comprehend it in the moment until maybe a year or two later or until you are in a, a happy state. Uh, I think happiness, finding something that you're passionate about, stress is, is such a killer for most people. It can affect your sleep, your mood, your appetite, uh, the way you function from a day-to-day -day basis, um, even on a subconscious level too. There's uh, just changes that are, that are going on within your body that most of us don't realize try to make a conscious effort to be happy and to fulfill or surround yourself with people and things that do make you happy is huge. As funny as it sounds, um, leg strength and foot speed are something that I've really focused on lately. That's so interesting that foot speed is a predictor of longevity. Tell us more about that. It, not necessarily in the sense of measuring how fast you move your feet predicts how long you're going to live, but the amount of falls that happen that lead to either hospitalization, the lack of independence, uh, or death. I think it was you know, one in four Americans over 65 will fall each year. And 65 is not that old. I mean, especially now. And this is a fairly recent statistic. You know, you see a lot of older folks who are very healthy and active and take those evening walks together or take them solo. You know, even older folks who are at the gym or out participating in recreational activities. There are also those who are sitting at home who might be overweight. They're retired at that point. So they might only be walking to and from the living room to the fridge or to the bathroom or they're wrapped up in their, their own home most of the time and they're not getting much activity. I think it was every 11 seconds, uh, an adult is treated for a fall in an emergency room and every 19 minutes, an adult dies from a fall, which is pretty uh, dramatic. Um, the fact that people are dying that often from falls. A lot of this, again, as you get older, you lose strength, it happens, but you can do a lot of things before you get to that point to really build up your body, to build up the muscles in your legs to practice, you know, walking as bad as that sounds, a lot of people lose that ability later in life and they trip over the rug or they trip over their dog or their cat 
or they just stumble over a, a little step in their home and they fall and that's the end of it. Something as simple as taking a walk every evening after dinner for 15, 20 minutes, getting a little bit of physical activity every couple of days and building some of that strength is, is very huge and um, creates a lot of independence. So the last thing I'll say about that, I, one of my favorite uh, stories or practices, I follow a guy named Ben Greenfield, who is one of the, the experts and top proponents of I, you know, biohacking is the, one of the newer terms that are out now. Um, but just creating a, a longer life for himself. He works at home and he sits down, kind of crosses his legs, stands up 50 to 100 times a day sometimes, usually on average about 30. But he says if he has the time, he'll do it as many times or he'll get down on all hand, on you know his hands and knees and practice standing up. How old is this guy? So this guy's only 35, but he has <laughs> plans to do this until he's 80. And if you did this every day, you know, maybe you go from 40 times a day to 30 times a day by the time you get to 70. And then maybe it's only 20 times a day. Uh, but I've worked with people who they're on the ground and they're doing, you know, sit-ups or they're stretching. And we say, all right, it's time to get up. And they need a hand or they need a railing to stand up. They can't put their feet underneath themselves, push off of the ground and stand up on their own. Every time I see that, it concerns me because a lot of these folks are, granted, they are overweight and they're not used to some of the physical activity but they might only be 50 years old or 60 years old. And if they're having trouble doing that now, you know, that's my biggest fear is to, to walk in on one of my parents or, you know, someone that I love that is not able to get up and, you know, having to call for assistance, it, it'd be a tough spot to be in, not only for the person caregiving, but for that person themselves, you know, you lose that independence, you lose the ability to have control of your life. And to me, that's, you know, it's pretty sad to, to see somebody get to that point whenever some of these things can be prevented. Diet is huge, but physical activity might even be more important than that in creating a strong foundation for your body. So in Ben Greenfield's sitting exercises, is he he's getting down on the ground or is he getting down on a chair and practicing getting up 50 to 100 times a day? Crisscross, crisscross applesauce. It's, it's full on sitting on the ground with your actual butt on the floor and then having to get one leg underneath you and stand up. It's, it's not as common, I think, as most people realize that, it, that that's a tough thing for older folks to do. Uh, it's an awkward position to be in if you get older. That's good advice. All right, everyone, go tell your parents to start practicing getting up from the floor. It's going gonna, it's gonna to matter later. No, no judgment. <laughs> Moving on, you talk about on your Instagram the benefits of being in cold water or taking yes. cold showers. Tell us about that cold water thermogenesis or cold thermogenesis. Uh, it, there are so many benefits that you have coming from there. Usually I take a shower in the morning just to get going. And that cold thermogenesis, it releases norepinephrine, which is very similar to adrenaline. And it actually dilates some of your blood vessels. It allows that blood flow to move through a little bit better. It can create a little bit more focus and acuity mentally. So the I mean, within a minute that I'm in there, I go from being fairly tired to pretty well awake. Uh, you know, I still drink coffee afterwards, but it's one of those things that I, it wakes me up almost as much, if not more than coffee. And especially before, whether I have to, to speak with somebody or just get the most focus out of a situation that I can, I'll take a cold shower right before, even if it's midday, I'll stand in there for five minutes or so. Again, that the amount of uh, mental clarity that I have afterwards is it's on par again with any type of stimulant that I've taken uh, without that type of jitteriness or that type of, you know, 
extra benefit that you get from coffee. I know you've talked about it before, but the uh, your autonomic nervous system, it's you know kind of dealing with that parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system. So if you picture or remember any time you've been in cold water, that first time you jump in, or if you're in the shower and it's cold, that <laughs> it like knocks the wind out of you if it's cold yep. enough. You're like, holy shit, am I drowning? You can't breathe, and partially your body is trying to do that so that it's regulating the resources that it has. So there's something called the mammalian dive reflex and every animal has it. They've even shown that with seals, before they jump into the water, their heart rate will actually lower because they're anticipating getting into water. So free divers will do this where before they actually dive down a couple hundred feet, while they're sitting in the boat on the surface, they take their mask, they put some water in that and they put that over their face. So they're sitting on the boat with water touching their face. And you can even try this, again, I've done it with a heart rate monitor where I've put cold water into a sink, just the sink itself. And I've submerged my face into that sink and I've watched my heart rate drop some upwards of 20 points sometimes from maybe like the mid nineties to early hundreds down into the seventies or even sixties or fifties. So your body really wants to conserve the oxygen and these other nutrients that it has inside. So it'll lower your heart rate by doing that, by practicing that over and over and over, I've been able to make my body and my nervous system a little more resilient to stress. So by introducing the stress of cold water, when I get into a situation, say, anticipating, you know, meeting somebody for coffee, which typically would happen to me, I used to deal with a lot of social anxiety. Like when we, like when we met on Tinder. <laughs> exactly. So meeting somebody for the first time, when I get to that stage of maybe five to 10 minutes before meeting them. You know, your heart rate increases, you might start sweating, you get nervous. And I've noticed almost immediately after a couple of weeks of doing these cold water immersions that I've lost a lot of that stress or I've lost a lot of that anxiety. And, you know, it's not something on a day-to-day -day basis. I think, oh, I feel way calmer today. It's not until I get into those scenarios where my body is prepping itself for some sort of stress. And like, again, meeting you or meeting somebody for the first time, I'm not even sure why I'm nervous. You know, I, I think I've met a million people before. I shouldn't be nervous. And there's still those reactions that take place that you just can't control. So by addressing that and introducing some of these minor stressful situations like the sauna or like cold water immersion, you can actually train your body to realize, okay, you know, let's take this with a grain of salt for the next couple of minutes. If it actually is dangerous or a, a survival scenario, then my body will still kick into that. You know, I'm not kind of numb to any type of stressors, but some of those minor ones that, that do paralyze you for the meantime, uh, they can definitely be inhibited. And then lastly, um, your blood glucose response can be uh, affected by it quite a bit. So when you're cold, especially when you shiver, you're using your muscles a little bit more and you're actually having to use energy. So any of that blood sugar that is in your bloodstream at that point, does get absorbed into your muscles and the insulin that's running through your body that helps that sugar get into your muscles works a little bit better. So I've done some testing on, you know, my, my blood glucose after a heavier carbohydrate meal, I'll wait about an hour. I'll take a cold shower for about 10 minutes. And even without the, the shivering effect, uh, just that the cold water, I do a lot of breath work while I'm in there to try to mitigate some of that shivering. 
but I've noticed a huge decrease in my blood glucose, not only immediately after, but for maybe two to three hours after that shower. So I've gone from somewhere in the mid nineties down to about 70. And then even when I do eat a little bit of carbohydrates after that, my body does a great job of absorbing that. My insulin is working kind of in overdrive at that point. So for someone who might be pre-diabetic or who is struggling controlling their blood glucose and having to take insulin, that's something that might be very helpful for them too. It's pretty interesting that cold water can supercharge your brain and like enact that parasympathetic nervous system state where, you know, you're like at peace and calm, your heart rate is slow. Um, it's and- that, that old adage of, you know, if, you know, just splashing water on your face. You know, how many times have you heard parents say that, you know, when their people are, you know, trying to wake up or they're trying to, uh, you know, even usually that's the scenario when you're saying, you know, just splashing water to wake up, you know, even that in itself is creating all those responses in your body where it's, it's having to, vasodilate your blood vessels and it's having to release some of that norepinephrine and that does actually wake you up a little bit. So we talked about waking up, but let's talk about going to sleep real quick. How do you maintain good sleep hygiene and what are your suggestions for other people to sleep better? If it were up to me, I wouldn't sleep. I would, you know, choose to never sleep and work throughout the night if that allowed my body to still be healthy, but I know sleep is is hugely important to your mental state, your physical state. So for me, I've had to actually even set timers of this is when I put my phone down. This is when I get into bed to kind of create some more accountability for myself. Uh, I think with technology now, the amount of screens that we have, it, I find myself even daily falling into that loop of, uh, you know, looking at something on my phone and 20 minutes to 30 minutes passes. And I think, shit, I'm, I'm actually past, you know, my quote unquote bedtime. Staying consistent is huge. Your body, as we talked about earlier, releases melatonin. And if your body is used to releasing that every night at say 10 o'clock and you do get on a good sleep schedule, that one evening when you do push that past 10 o'clock, say you're you know, doing some research or you're hanging out with friends or what have you, and you ignore that, your body's releasing that melatonin to, to help you get to sleep, but you're overriding that. You're kind of you know, forcing yourself to stay awake so by 11 or 12, that melatonin's kind of exhausted itself and you no longer have that natural tired feeling. And then they have a hard time falling asleep at two or three. And they you know, think, well, how was I almost about to fall asleep at 12 or at 10, but I've made it until 12 or one in the morning somehow. And now I still can't fall asleep. And you know, then you deal with some of the anxiety of not sleeping. Uh, so I think scheduling is huge getting some sunlight in the morning is also going to help with that melatonin and uh, that circadian rhythm, that that sleep schedule that your body has naturally. So being able to get some sun exposure first thing in the morning, and it's not light exposure from your phone, it's actual (laughs) natural sunlight. You know, I try to open up my window and even just like look outside for 30 seconds and try to absorb that in, you know, your eyes, you get to that point where you can open them a little bit more and a little bit more that's really going to help out there. The, the appetite regulation that comes from sleep is huge. As you start to lose sleep or you get out of that schedule, your body releases certain hormones that make you uh, either more hungry or less hungry. So it can actually make you feel like you need more food and you're going to overeat that day. Uh, it can also uh, inhibit your insulin response, which is what controls some of your blood sugar. 
your body might not do as great of a job of absorbing that blood sugar. So it sits in your bloodstream a bit longer, turns into more of a fat storage at that point, increases your risk for diabetes. So there's a, a host of, of issues that come with high blood sugar, or with high blood sugar. Uh, and a lot of that can be related back to sleep. How many hours should we be sleeping a night? Most people would recommend seven to eight hours to nine hours. Um, you know, I don't think you can oversleep necessarily. Uh, you can in the sense of, you know, productivity. You typically don't need more than, I'd say, nine hours. Some people have the ability to sleep nine, 10, 11 hours. Uh, you know, after maybe nine hours, you're not really getting an added benefit to sleep. But there are a number of studies. Uh, Matthew Walker is probably... The, the biggest proponent of sleep and has done some of the most research. He has a book called Why We Sleep. And he said, as weirdly as it is, if you're going to get surgery, to ask that doctor how long they've been on, they've been working or they've been uh, on shift. The amount of medical errors during surgery that happen uh, to doctors that are later in their shift, maybe approaching 10 to 15 hours, there's a, a dramatic increase in medical errors or the amount of uh, car accidents actually from nurses. I think it's like a, you're 170% more likely to end up back in that same hospital you left after a 20 hour shift once you leave. So, you know, we're, we're overworking our doctors and nurses and we're putting them at risk to be back in that same hospital that they just left. There's a huge correlation between Alzheimer's and lack of sleep. There's a, a number of people he's referenced in the book, uh, a number of studies that attribute that lack of sleep to Alzheimer's. Your brain actually clears out a lot of these harmful plaques that build up in your brain. Amyloid plaques are now known to be attributed to causing Alzheimer's. And when you're sleeping, your brain actually swells a little bit and it actually reduces or relieves some of that amyloid plaque. How, how many people are like, yeah, I get five hours of sleep. I'm good. You know, they wake up the next day, they go to work and they, they don't have an issue. They think with, with the amount of sleep they get. So I think learning a little bit more about the effects of sleep the, the older generations were, you know, work, 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 you can sleep when you're dead. You know, it's that the amount of times that I've heard that phrase sleep when you're dead is, is something that made me believe it. That is a phrase that I used to use to keep my friends uh, to, from going to bed. No, we need to keep partying. You can sleep when you're dead. Well, that might be a little bit more justified. <laughs> Sorry, at that friends, point. my bad. <laughs> no, and I, like I said, it's tough. I, I mean, I hate, I honestly don't like going to sleep at nighttime. I would rather stay up. I would rather. Well, it kind of feels like a waste. It's like, do I have to sleep? It's just, it, I don't even know the statistic of how long, if you lived to be, you know, like 90 years old, you slept, but it, it seems like a waste. You know, it's interesting you say that. I think that there's two perspectives that most people that think that way probably have a little bit more enjoyment in life. You know, where like you're saying, when you're partying, you want to live that moment as long as possible. When you're, you know, building a business in the evening that you really love, you want to work on that thing until two in the morning. You, you genuinely enjoy doing that. So that's what's tough, I think, is finding that happy middle where, you know, you can be productive, but you also, you know, are still happy and you get the sleep you need. It's like meditation I was talking about with Ryan in my other episode, um, that like taking time to sit and do nothing will actually help you be more productive in, in what you like to do. Um, sounds like sleep's very similar, you know, maybe you don't want to, but just do it because your brain needs to download everything from today. So it can be ready for tomorrow. It's to the point now where I'm so hyper aware that I need sleep or that I should get sleep 
that say I have a, a big event coming up or an exam or uh, a meeting the following day. And I, I know that, oh shit, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get more than six to seven hours tonight. You know, I, I get a little fearful for the next day. And I think, am I really going to be able to perform the way I want to if I don't get this sleep? For those of you listening, if you're curious, I personally enjoy using a sleep time. It's not an app. I just go online, I type in sleep clock, and it'll tell you the options are what time do you need to wake up? And it'll tell you what time you need to go to bed so that you can get five to six REM cycles, which are those 90 minutes where, you know, your body moves into rapid eye movement and you get the most out of sleep that you can um or it'll tell you okay when do you need to wake up here's when you need to go to bed and vice versa or it has a button for if you're going to bed right now it factors in the seven to 14 minutes it takes to fall asleep and it'll tell you what time to wake up because i find that if i wake up in the middle of a REM cycle i'm very groggy um but it's like when you say you don't have an alarm clock set and you just naturally wake up that was probably the end of a REM cycle and if you were to start another one you know you wouldn't feel as rested at the moment of waking up. Um, like you're saying, to even take into account the, the time it takes to fall asleep, or if you do wake up and go to the bathroom once or twice a night, you know, that might be an extra hour that you're losing. So if you've been in bed for eight hours, but you're only asleep for maybe six and a half. Yeah, how much sleep did you actually get? To know that I think is huge. There are these these resources and these uh, these tracking methods to just provide more data and information for us. For those of us who don't have, say, space for an ice bath or a sauna or health insurance for genetic testing, what are some steps we could take to improve our health? Just small steps. The genuine want to change. You know, everyone, again, everyone wants to change. But um, I think maybe being as completely open and honest with yourself as possible for me, I wrote down the things that I felt like I was doing right and I felt like I was doing wrong. And then I paid attention to those throughout the next couple of weeks. And I thought, am I really doing the thing that I subconsciously or even consciously think that I'm doing right? Is that actually happening from day to day? Or am I just tricking myself and saying, yeah, you're getting enough sleep. You know, you feel fine every morning or, you know, you're getting enough exercise or, you know, enough sunlight. Um, so, you know, for the sunlight, that was the one thing I thought, you know, I go outside enough. I, you know, work out outside. I, sometimes I work outside and I didn't realize how little sunlight I was actually getting. Being accountable to yourself is huge and, and realizing what you might need to change. A lot of this technology, whether it's, you know, you have the internet or if you don't, you know, you have the ability now to join certain groups or meet certain people. And I get it. I, I, I used to be, and I still am very skinny. And that was my downside of wanting to work out is that if I go to the gym, I'm going to be that skinny person who doesn't look like they know what they're doing, you know, asking a question or, you know, reaching out to them. I think there's, there's so much more help out there than, than those who are, you know, on the outskirts realize, um, you know, it might just realize, you know, be one of those things where you realize that somebody is near you and you say, Hey, you know, what's your trick? Being able to reach out to somebody is one of the scariest things, especially if it's a new area. Um, But that's all I encourage people that are are trying to break into any type of health or wellness is to ask questions and to try to be involved and to take those steps to to get themselves into that. And if you do have the ability to access social media, again, that's where I started my journey, following certain doctors and nutrition experts online and and then researching the, the topics that they provided 
as we all know, you can get down a hole pretty quickly on YouTube or on the internet. Uh, there's a lot of information and you can be absorbed into it pretty quickly. So what if I literally only have the mental capacity to add, say, a new vitamin to my life? Um, what could I yeah. take to be healthier? So for me, I take a multivitamin. It's got words of probably 30 or 40 different nutrients in there. That recommended daily dose is what you're looking at. Uh, a lot of vitamins now have 100 to 200 to 300 to 1,000% of your daily recommended dose. You really only need that 100%. So trying to find a multivitamin, I think that just covers your basis is huge. Um, you know, it is tough to buy supplements, but again, you can buy a, a multivitamin that costs you maybe 50 cents a day. And I think that's a huge start to make sure that you have your baseline covered. We can't get all the nutrients that we want from food. It's very tough to get the adequate amount from food. So being able to supplement with a multivitamin, unless you have a, a greater deficiency in one area or another, that's going to do you wonders. And that's going to create a, a really solid platform for you to work off of as you start to get more curious, uh, which typically happens. Maybe you can jump into the genetic testing or blood testing at that point. Yeah, just a, a multivitamin in the morning or in the afternoon, a really, really good place to start. Another thing that you mentioned I thought was interesting is that just like a, a small step you could take to change, you know, and be a little bit healthier is cooking at home. It ends up forcing accountability uh, before you realize it. But I think, you know, forcing yourself to eat at home can in turn spark some other ideas. Most people have all the tools they need at home. They've got a stove. They've got a sink by cooking at home consistently and not relying on other places to actually prepare your food for you. You become a little bit more aware of what's going into your food. So yeah, maybe you do start out eating mac and cheese every day because you know, you are still cooking at home, but then you turn the ingredients around on the box and that kind of creates a little bit more awareness of what's going into your body. This has a lot of fat in it and it's only one of my meals per day. So what am I actually eating? Being more accountable in your own scenarios or in your own life uh, is something that, again, kind of takes you down this, this hole or this path um, before even realizing it, just creates a little bit more awareness about what you're eating. It sounds like empowerment 101 right here. You know, even if I'm eating like shit, I still made it and that's kind of cool. And then maybe after long enough, I will start thinking about what's in the food I'm eating and maybe change it and fuck around when you're young is the best time to mess around with your diet and figure out what works for you. The earlier you can try to jump on that train, I think the better. Is there anything else that you want to add to the folks about Just behavioral be change? Just be happy. Just okay. be happy. Find, find something that, that you enjoy doing. There's just not much time left in life, whether you're 10 or you're 50 or you're 80, there's, a lot less time than, excuse me, than I, I think we actually realize. And to try to make use of that as best as possible. You know, I, I heard you talking the other day about um, reaching out to, to people you may have done wrong or something that I love doing now is sending a friend a text, just being like, hey, dude, have a good day. And, you know, I might not have talked to them for two weeks, but if I didn't send that text, maybe I don't talk to them for like a month or two. And then maybe our relationship fizzles out. And it's something that, you know, I think happens to a lot of people and they don't, they don't want those relationships to end. It just happens. And I think that's the excuse of, you know, everyone went different places in life or we went different paths and um, we have the ability now to support each other and to help each other and, and motivate each other you know, within two seconds by sending a text. 
or by reaching out and saying, you know, that thing I did a couple years ago is pretty shitty. You know, whether that is a selfish venture or not, you know, apologies are a lot more self-fulfilling for that person apologizing than the other person. It can create a happier life for you. And then maybe that other person realizes, you know, I've done some pretty shitty things too. And maybe I'll reach out to somebody else. The happiness that we can create for ourselves is much more abundant than we realize. And yeah, just, just finding a passion that you enjoy doing. I mean, dude, I'm like creating this podcast is so cool for you to see you do because. Oh, thank you. <laughs> like, you know, it, it's something that I'm sure you've thought about for a while, or you've thought about wanting to do something in, you know, on your own for a while. I thought and, about doing this for years, for years. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's just amazing when you actually dive head on and into something. Um, same with me with the, health coaching and nutrition, you know, I wanted to do it. And all it took was going online and putting in my credit card and buying a few classes and then doing it. But, you know, I had to actually do that. And a lot of it's just wishful thinking. The hardest part is the first step. Yeah, absolutely. And the kind of the cascading waterfall afterwards is, you know, like I said, you're, you're well on your way now and you continue to do this week after week or month after month. And five years from now, you've got a few hundred people you've talked to and, you know, you've learned a lot. You've passed a lot of information on to others. That's super helpful. You could still be in that phase of like, eh, next year I'll do it. Yeah, I'll do it next year. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, who knows if next year is even going to be here. So not to be dark in that oh, sense, okay. a, lot of that gives, <laughs> a lot of that gives me light, but like, you know, it, with this pandemic, being realistic, but being in the moment and, you know, just trying to appreciate where you are in life is, is something that most people would get a lot out of. It's invaluable for sure. Happiness There's... cannot come from outside circumstances because outside circumstances change. Happiness has to come from within because then nothing and no one can take that from you. I'm here right now. Like I'm living this moment, talking to you is super cool because I don't have to think about 10 minutes ahead of me. I don't have to think about, you know, 20 minutes in the past. I'm right here. And in a year, I'm going to remember this experience, but I'm here right now. And I think that's super beautiful that, that I can appreciate that while I'm with you. And then in five years, look back on that and think, Oh, remember that time I was sitting in my room talking to Emily, you know, it's, I think before we realize it, those, those experiences can, can kind of manifest themselves into, you know, new knowledge. And if you're more aware of that scenario at the time, rather than just going through the phases or the process, you can get a lot out of it. Yeah. Living in the moment is just a reoccurring theme during this pandemic, isn't it? Um, it's doing what you can. <laughs> the survival aspect of it is interesting of, you know, figuring out, you know, what am I going to do now? Or how am I going to make things work or, or tie pieces together? And, you know, people are a lot more resilient than we give, give ourselves credit for. Yeah. Well, beautiful. Thank you for helping us uh, empower ourselves. Holy shit, you guys, we gave you a truckload. Um, genetic testing, taking cold showers, the importance of sleep and good hygiene. We really hit all of it. If you want to try intermittent fasting, look it up before you start. But that's definitely something that John has enjoyed. And, um, most importantly, I just like to remind you, make sure you get on the floor and then get back up. Sit down a few times a day. Sit down a few times a day on the floor, get on all fours, come back up. <laughs> do, 
Yeah. Get yourself out of your comfort zone a little bit. Challenge yourself a little bit. Not too much, but enough to give you some satisfaction and some, some more resilience in life. It feels good to do things that are hard, too. Absolutely. It's, I mean, it's what we were made for. We're made to outrun lions and hunt for our food and, you know, not sit around and have our food delivered to us and walk for a mile each day. You know, our bodies are very resilient. So just challenge yourself. I love it. So once again, guys, his Instagram is at John Ferris Kelly, F-A-R-I-S-K-E-L-L-Y on Instagram. You can follow along with his health and wellness journey and watch him lift large containers of water as an exercise. Um, thanks, John, for being on. Always am. Um, I appreciate it. It's great seeing you. You too. Bye, dude. Take care.